Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. In the beginning, there was Yellowstone. And it was good. I mean, good, you know, but kind of neglected. The kind of neglected that inspired one 1877 visitor to the park to remark that though the formations around the Yellowstone geysers appeared delicate, they were in fact so solid that a, quote, hatchet is often necessary to obtain a choice piece for your cabinet. Wait, you can't do that. That's not allowed. No, that's not allowed. But see, it's a little tricky when you've got 3,472 square miles of park and one guy in charge of it all. One guy. All alone. No help. One guy, a single superintendent under the Department of the Interior, with no help and no pay. Eventually, Congress figured out that you can't just call something a protected park without the money to protect it. And the answer was simple. Create the National Park Service. No, no, no. Send in the troops. Like the military, the federal troops? Yes, the military. Our first park rangers, in essence. August 18th, 1886, Captain Moses Harris rides into Yellowstone with Troop M of the U.S. Cavalry. And it's not just Yellowstone that needs protecting. By 1890, you've got Sequoia National Park, Kings Canyon National Park, Yosemite National Park... And by the way, many of these cavalrymen were what were known as buffalo soldiers. And that's a subject that deserves a whole episode. These were all black American regiments who did everything from build trails to kick out poachers to stop private livestock from grazing in parks. Now, after a while, the Department of the Interior started hiring civilian scouts and rangers as well. But still, there was no official National Park Service. So at what point do we actually have a park service? Like, when does the military march out and Ranger Smith march in to chase Yogi Bear around? Great question. This is Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And today, we're taking a walk in the National Park Service. And a quick note to listeners, we recently released an episode about our first national park, Yellowstone. You should give a listen in the podcast feed. But back to today, NPS, the National Park Service. So how did we go from rough riding cavalry to, like you said, Nick, Ranger Smith and Yogi Bear? Which, by the way, is a reference to a popular cartoon from the 60s featuring a meddlesome bear who steals picnic baskets in Jellystone Park and the put-upon ranger who was trying to stop him. Ranger Smith, by the way, is actually former military, U.S. Army. Who knew? So before we can get to the beginning of the park rangers who you know today, a little someone named Teddy Roosevelt has to come in. We need leaders of inspired idealism, leaders to whom are granted great visions, who dream greatly and strive to make their dreams come true. Isn't he like 
synonymous with the idea of national parks? He did create five of them. That's true. He doubled the park system, uh, though the park system did not actually exist as an official agency at that point. Also, super importantly, Roosevelt signed the Antiquities Act of 1906, which empowered presidents, including him, of course, to designate national monuments, basically to federally protect all kinds of historic lands and structures and things of scientific interest. So a national monument isn't like a statue, per se. No, no, no. Sometimes they have statues. But the primary difference between a national monument and a national park is the historical slash cultural slash scientific significance thing and um, the fact that a president can just make them without Congress. Also, the land already has to be owned by the federal government. So the president can't out of the blue say, hey, Nick, your backyard is fascinating. We're making it a monument. All right. Got it. The military does indeed march out eventually. 30 years after troops first arrived in Yellowstone, the National Park Service arrives. That is 1916, courtesy of President Woodrow Wilson. And a hundred some odd years later, you're talking 423 national park sites across 85 million acres of U.S. states and territories staffed by 20,000 people. Well, Hannah, (laughs) maybe I've grown cynical over the past few years, but there's something strange about having tens of thousands of federal employees whose sole job is to handle beautiful or historical land for people to visit. It seems weirdly romantic for a federal project. Yeah, I agree. This idea of like, let's not mess with this place too much is not exactly an American tradition, right? So let's figure out how this odd duck works. When folks think about the National Park Service, those are the folks that actually you see in the green uniforms uh, when you go to the national parks. Um, A lot of times that's what people think about. But the national park system is so much more than that. This is Kirsten Talkin-Spaulding. She's deputy regional director of the National Park Service Northeast Region. So with over 400 individual units of the system, there are, gosh, 150 or so related sites. That means they're not necessarily units, but we work with them um, directly. Wait, units? Yeah, it's kind of a funny term. Um, And it's because these places take so many different forms, which we'll get to later. There are a ton of assistance programs that the National Park Service does. The National Park Service administers a number of programs that are particularly geared towards the natural and cultural history. And Kirsten, like so many who work for the National Park Service, has been with and all over the system for a long time. I've had the opportunity to serve all across the nation, as far west as Haleakala on Maui, um, starting two brand new national park units, one Mojave National Preserve in California, and most recently at Fort Monroe National Monument, again here in Virginia, uh, Mentioned the Bevanetto Fellowship have the opportunity to serve on the Hill with the United States Senate, uh, working with them for a year on the language that actually creates the bills. The Bevanetto Fellowship, by the way, is a two-year program for National Park Service employees to learn how Congress works and the role that Congress plays for the NPS. So Kirsten actually got to see how the sausage of her own federal agency got made? Yes, and just as a quick aside, you know how we used to refer to this podcast as Schoolhouse Rock for adults? Some folks are familiar with Schoolhouse Rock. 
And perhaps you're familiar with the little cartoon of I'm just a bill. Uh, that is the training video for folks coming into the Bevanetto Fellowship. I hope they decide to report on me favorably, otherwise I may die. Die? Yeah, die in committee. They actually watch it? They actually watch it. So here is how the legislation that governs this enormous system happens. It's an interesting thing. Um, Have you ever been in a game of telephone before? Telephone? Do kids even play telephone anymore? I don't know. Where you're like, park my car by the library, and it gets whispered around the room, and the last person's like, put my eggplant in the fry daddy. (laughs) It's actually a fun game. Yeah. That is a fun game, man. I'll give you that. Writing bills can be a lot like that, where the language that's intended isn't what ends up on the paper. One of Kirsten's jobs was to make sure that at the end of that game of legislative telephone, whatever the bill was actually made sense. What I was able to do was to read the language that was provided and say, okay, well, when I read it like this, my understanding of how it would be implemented in the national park system is that... And then the person could go, oh, that's exactly what I meant. And then we would move merrily on. Or they would go, oh, man, that is not what I meant at all. And so they would ask for some refinements, and we'd work collaboratively to make sure that that congressional member's intent behind the bill, that language was reflected in the bill itself. But what kind of legislation is still happening nowadays? Is Congress creating new national parks? Sometimes. I found out that Congress snuck New River Gorge in West Virginia into the COVID-19 relief bill in 2020. Sometimes they expand a park's borders, sometimes they change a name. That's an especially useful tool when a site has a racist or derogatory name, which is, believe it or not, not all that uncommon. Um, Sometimes they authorize a new park or unit. They can also decommission a park, which doesn't necessarily make a park go away. The government just divests it and it goes to a state or town. For example, Nick, the second ever national park, Mackinac Island in Lake Huron, was decommissioned in 1895 and then became Michigan's first state park. Hmm. And as I learned at the beginning of the episode, uh, when you make something a national park, you can't just casually entrust it to one unpaid employee. You've got to give it resources. When you're looking at 85 million acres, 20,000 employees... How much money does Congress budget for the national park system? Congress appropriates about $3.5 billion to support the National Park Service. Uh, That is primarily to support the 22,000 full and part seasonal employees that work there and all the operating costs associated with each of those park units, as, as well as the overall administration and management of the system. This is Will Shafroth. He's the CEO of the National Parks Foundation, which, Nick, get this, is a nonprofit that Congress established to raise money for the National Park Service. I had no idea that was even a thing, Hannah. Like, uh, the Department of Homeland Security doesn't have a nonprofit organization funding their body scanners. How is that a thing? I don't know. It just is. It's It's a thing. The federal operating budget for the parks doesn't cover everything the parks do. So this foundation was established to help cover the gaps. The idea was first... Um, developed in the early 60s as a result of a, an undertaking that actually President Eisenhower initiated and called the Outdoor Recreation Review Commission and looking at all of our public lands and figure out how do we, how do we make them better? How do we manage the diversity of, of needs on there for recreation, for conservation? 
And so there was a proposal to create a, a nonprofit organization, the first of its kind, to support public lands in this country. And the National Park Foundation was ultimately established in 1967 to be the official charitable partner for the national parks. All right. So what is the National Parks Foundation actually doing? They do what we, public radio people, do all the time, Nick. They ask for money. And then they give that money to the National Park Service. They do other things, too. What we fund is really the the over and above that, that the Park Service really doesn't get covered through the federal budget process. And so, so we serve, in a way, as a land trust to support the National Park. So we step in and, and we will help. Uh, often partner with other organizations to, to acquire a piece of property and then turn it over to the National Park Service so it becomes part of the federal estate. The great example of that was at Martin Luther King's National Historic Park in Atlanta where the King family, you know, desired to, to, to basically sell the birth and life home of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King and, and really sell them through us to the National Park Service. So we, we stepped in with the resource, the financial resources it took us a while to negotiate the transaction because of a lot of complicated things around it. But we did that um, with a full permission and support of the National Park Service. I had never considered the fact that the National Park's properties have to be negotiated over or bought. Well, think about it. It's giant swaths of real estate, often beautiful and historically significant real estate. Now, obviously, there are parks like Yellowstone that were just designated and taken. But these days, there are millions of acres of private land that the park system wants to acquire that need to be paid for. So the National Parks Foundation is like the benefactor who swoops in and saves the day. It's not quite as romantic as all that. Even with the help from the National Parks Foundation, even with their portion of the federal budget, which, by the way, comes from the Land and Water Conservation Fund, As of 2021, there was billions of dollars worth of land that the NPS wanted to acquire and protect, and the money just wasn't there. So basically, it's not as simple as Congress saying, hey, that's pretty, or hey, that's important, let's make it a park. Yeah, stuff costs money. So what does the federal budget actually do for the Park Service? I think Will Shafroth summed this up pretty well when he talked about what he raises money for. We are not going to be effective at raising money from individuals, families, foundations, or corporations to pay for road maintenance or repair of the water system or a new septic system at some remote part or roof repairs or a new HVAC equipment. We've done that a little bit, but you know, basically those kind of things just feel like the federal responsibility, right? That's what the park service is supposed to be doing. So, so we have to define not only what the priorities are, but be honest with them say, these are the things of your long list. Here are the, the 10 things that we think that we're going to be really good at raising money for. And if, we, if you send us off on a, kind of a fool's errand of trying to you know, raise money to, to repair the potholes, we're not going to come back with very much money. In other words, the foundation leaves the quotidian everyday stuff to the federal government and raises money for flashy stuff like a piece of the Florida Everglades. It's just not a very sexy sell to be like, hey donors, Gettysburg needs a new septic system. Wait, hold on for a second, actually, because um, Gettysburg is a battlefield. We could do this all day. Like, how is Gettysburg a national park? See, this is the thing I'm trying to wrap my head around, Hannah, uh, that the park system is not just enormous, spectacular, natural landscapes. It's also battlefields like Gettysburg and uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s home, right? And the Ford Theater and the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and the Fire Island National Seashore and the Statue of Liberty. 
By the way, we mentioned those national monuments, the things the presidents get to make. Some national monuments are also under the national park system, like Stonewall National Monument in Manhattan, for example, Nick. The first ever national monument dedicated to LGBTQ rights and history. That was both designated by Barack Obama and put under the NPS. So far, Hannah, the national park system is much more patchwork and varied than I expected. You've got different types of land, different types of funding sources. There's like so many different places and so many different purposes. Who, who runs the whole thing? There's a Senate-confirmed director of the National Park Service as well as three deputy directors to keep this sprawling network functioning. Kirsten has a pretty apropos way of describing the structure. I often think about the service like a, a large tree. There's all these different branches. We've got a law enforcement branch and we've got um, naturalists and we've got scientists and we've got um, maintenance employees. These are all different branches. And then we've got the administration. That's like the roots of the tree. You don't always see them, but they're bringing on all kinds of resources that really allow that, that, um, that organism to thrive. So what is that tree actually doing? We'll figure out what the National Park System is about today after a short break. But before we do, just a quick reminder that we, too, rely on donations. That's a good pivot. Thank you. If you're feeling charitable, please consider heading over to civics101podcast.org to make a contribution. And in the meantime, we'll keep cultivating the park of civic engagement. Thanks. We're back. You're listening to Civics 101, and we're talking about the national park system. Now, before the break, we talked about the fact that the NPS acquires and then manages important land when they can afford it. But I want to give you a closer look. So when Congress authorizes a national park, they authorize it often with an exact boundary. Like, this is in and that's out of the park. This is Kirsten Talkenspalding, a longtime NPS employee. Now, it doesn't mean that there's federal ownership of all of that land within the boundary. So we have an authorized boundary of the park, but then we have the federal lands that are part of inside that authorized boundary. So let's say Farmer Joe is inside the authorized park boundary. He doesn't want to be a farmer anymore. His kids don't want to be farmers anymore. He wants to sell his land. He could sell to a developer and he could have, you know, multiple houses or whatever developed on that land. If it's within the authorized boundary of the national park, we will engage with that person that has what we call a willing seller. We will engage with the willing seller and say, listen, this land is important to us and we'll, we'll share with him the reasons why it's important. It may be within the viewshed of, you know, a cultural landscape that's important to telling the stories of the park. It may have specific resources on that land. Wait, so just to clarify, there are people who actually live inside national parks? There are. For example, somewhat controversially, um, someone not too long ago built a luxury home on a private parcel in Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park, which, you know, while we're here, Nick, is a national park that I discovered by accident while I was on a road trip, and it's, like, gobsmacking. It's beautiful. But anyway, the point is, these pieces of land, these parcels, are called inholdings, and often the government tries to buy them or just hopes that the landowners donate them. 
Well, speaking of buying land, of the federal government deciding something ought to be a park for whatever reason, like what makes something park-worthy? For a long time, I think that there was a, a myopic view of what it means to be worthy to be preserved. It's a story that we should tell that glorifies us as a nation. And I think over the years, we've come to understand that to be inclusive means to recognize that we haven't always gotten it right. It also means that we go back and we try and reconcile and rectify some of the issues that we've had in the past. Having been here at the table across from you recording the Yellowstone episode, Hannah, one such issue that comes to mind is that most of this land was the home and birthright of tribal nations across the country. Kirsten and I talked about this at length. She took Acadia National Park in Maine as an example, where parks ecologists are finally asking the original stewards of the land how to best preserve it. So like the Micmac, the Penobscot, the Passamaquoddy, the indigenous folks that have been on the lands for hundreds, thousands of years in some places. When Acadia was created, it severed that natural relationship with the indigenous peoples of the land. When you create a park, you create opportunities. And in the past, sometimes it feels like we've also diminished opportunities. And I think when, we, when we've had that chance to really broaden out where we are and understanding um, what a national park can be, not just a place that we talk about past practices, but we actually encourage them to continue today the sweet grass traditions that were done by um, the Micmac, the Penobscot, the Passamaquoddy, they did this natural resource study. A quick history lesson here. For the better part of the past hundred years, tribal citizens were prohibited from gathering sweet grass in Acadia, which was both a vital cultural and ecological process. Even when the Wabanaki were permitted to reinstate this practice, it was under tight restrictions by the NPS. And this natural resource study that was aimed at understanding the impact of gathering sweetgrass, it ended up revealing how much better the Wabanaki understood sweetgrass than the botanists who were studying it. So vitally important when we think about climate change and the impacts that potentially could be had on our national parks, especially in the coastal lands. Well, they came to find out that it actually enhances the plant itself. Working with the tribes from that area, we can understand more deeply what it means to be connected to the land and do a better job of managing the land, not just what we think should be done, but understanding the hundreds and sometimes thousands of years of knowledge that some indigenous peoples can bring as well. I want to be clear here that there is also a nationwide indigenous-led movement to put indigenous land back in indigenous hands. It's called the Land Back Movement. And in other countries, indigenous managed land proves to be just as, if not more, biodiverse than preserved lands managed by governments. Now, currently, the National Park Service has around 80 official tribal relationships as well as four co-management agreements, which are specific legal arrangements that look different depending on the park and the tribe. 
Chuck F. Sams, the current director of the National Park Service, and by the way, the Park Service's first ever director who is also a tribal citizen, has been clear that he wants to create more collaborative and co-management arrangements with tribes across the country. Certainly the director has an interest to ensure that we're doing our part not just to um, collaborate and cooperate with our tribal nations, but that we work with them you know, in a really structured way. And I think that our agreements are part of the way that we do that. These agreements aren't just about like the science, but it even comes down to how do we manage from a maintenance standpoint? You know, if we know that we've got ground nesting birds, we don't mow that time of the year. So we, we have mowing plans that ensure that we assist with the populations of uh, some of our species that are unique to the areas. Um, we think about the development and planning related to climate change. That's got a lot to do with our connection and our understanding with our tribal nations and working with them directly as well. You know, Hannah, Kirsten mentioned earlier that part of the goal here is to reconcile and rectify, to acknowledge that the things that our government chose to preserve and the way it chose to preserve it was often about glorifying a country that has plenty of condemnable history. There are beautiful and important places that can at the same time represent American shame and disgrace. So I guess my question is, is the National Park Service building that truth into the park's experience today? National parks can be the tip of the spear when it comes to being able to have difficult conversations. So at Fort Monroe National Monument, at that space, that's where the, quote, contraband decision was made. And it was a pivotal turning point in the, in the Civil War where those folks that had been enslaved, self-emancipated, and they were now considered contraband of war and were not returned to enslavement. That changed a lot for the Civil War. Well, what does that now mean? How do we have that conversation about equity? How do we have that conversation about enslavement? How do we have the conversation about the ripple effects and the ongoing impact that the history that is told and understood at Fort Monroe National Monument, what better place to have that conversation, right? Here in the heart of the South, where there was the, we'll say the capital of the Confederacy, was in Virginia. And here is this Union fort, this Union-controlled fort in the middle of the capital of the Confederacy. What a great place to talk about what freedom means. So the value of a national park is not just imbued in the economics that it brings to the area, but in our ability to have a civil society that allows us to have these conversations to understand where we have done well, where we have done wrong, and how we can be better as a nation into the future. Kirsten told me about one of the newest additions to the national park system dedicated in March of 2022 the Amachi National Historical Site. It is also known as the Granada Relocation Center, where more than 10,000 Japanese Americans were interned during World War II. 
Now, the ostensible goal here, according to the government officials who have been talking about it, is to preserve a site reflective of an abhorrent period in American history and to teach visitors what we as a nation did to our own citizens. And that happened in large part, Nick, because of a high school teacher who'd been working with his students for 25 years to preserve the site. President Biden signing a bill this afternoon designated Amachi as the nation's newest national park. The former Japanese-American internment camp is located in southeastern Colorado in Grenada and near Lamar. It occurs to me, Hannah, that the park system is kind of like a living archive. It can set a place aside at the federal level that serves as proof of something having happened or something happening right now. Or, sure, something being beautiful or scientifically interesting. It's artifacts and art. Yeah, I spoke about this with both Kirsten and Will Shafroth from the Parks Foundation, and both saw that aspect as an opportunity to skirt politicization. Will talked about, for example, the fact that Glacier National Park will serve as a testament to climate change simply by melting away. We don't expect there to be glaciers by 2040. You know, and so there there are things that, that we can help in a very safe context that is apolitical and ajudgmental and just say, here's what's going on. It's also what we can do in, around a whole different set of issues around racial justice and, and, and equity that the parks really provide a place to tell the truth, to tell the truth about our nation's history and the long journey that we've taken to get to where we are and frankly just how much further we still have to go in a lot of ways. They just started just kind of telling the truth. Of course, for something to get to that point, it has to go through the political process. It has to be presented as worthy of the Park Service, worthy of federal money. I come back again to that well-trodden line, the National Park Service is America's best idea. And I kind of think it's more like the National Park Service reflects American ethos. The changes to the system are in part a result of citizens and organizations saying, hey, this is important. Don't look away. This is America, whether you like it or not. You better put it in the archive before we forget. Over 400 units, there's a reason why there's so many. You can't tell the nation's story at just a handful of national parks. You've got to have all of those voices, all of those stories, those dissonant times, those joyful times, you've got to have all of that together to really make an incredible symphony. And that's part of what our national park system does for the nation. This episode was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with help from Nick Capodice. Christina Phillips is our senior producer. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton. Rebecca Lavoy is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Newell Teal Records, Evan Schaefer, Ketza, Walt Adams, Sight of Wonders, Dusty Dex, Hollisner Raps, and Margareta. If you liked this episode, please consider writing a review. It tells us how we're doing. It tells us you're listening. We actually care about that. Thanks for everything. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.